to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. This episode is brought to you by Luminos and Curiosity Stream. My name is Stephen Hackett. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host and your friend, Jason Snell. Hey, friends. Hey. Hi, Stephen. Hello. Uh, we're back. It's good to be back. It's good to be back in space with you again. We're here every fortnight. Every fortnight. Every. Uh, I was talking to people about doing podcasting um, the other day who were thinking of doing a podcast. And they're like, boy, weekly sounds really hard. I said, you know what? Give the fortnightly a try. Every 14 days. Every 14 nights. Sorry. Four, 14 <laughs> nights. That is how is I count it between our meetings. It, yeah. No, it's mm-hmm. great. I like the fortnightly schedule. Um, I guess maybe we should say that this episode will be the last Monday episode. We're moving to Tuesday, starting with the next one. Yeah, this is and this is a follow-up. What we do is we record these uh, late the previous week and then release them on Monday. That's no good. Which is which is nice for Monday morning commuters and all that. But the problem is all space news happens between when we record right. and when we launch the episode, and that's not good. So we're gonna we're gonna record on Tuesdays um, and release on Tuesdays in the future. So you'll basically the next episode after this will drop fifteen days. So fifth nightly for one. <laughs> Only one. It's just one. Yeah, like uh, last episode, I, I recorded a little thing about SpaceX and just dropped it in the show. And so we're going to uh, be, yeah. be able to be more timely. And um, so, yeah, so we'll be out on uh, Tuesday afternoons starting with the next episode. But yeah. So let's start with the SpaceX thing. Uh, last time I spoke about, because you were traveling with your family, uh, they successfully landed on the drone ship, which is super cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, we had spoken about it, I think, the episode before maybe about the idea of like inflatable uh modules and yeah i thought it'd be fun to revisit that because that was part of their payload uh this time with this launch yeah the, there's the whole um this idea we talked about it in in the context of mars and in the context of space stations and we mentioned it when we talked about the international space station this idea that inflatables is a big topic of conversation because you can have something that is relatively compact and fit it in a rocket and then when you get it to space, you 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 inflate it or you expand it. And so you end up with a much greater volume than like a rigid, obviously like a rigid space habitat that you can fit in the top of a rocket is going to be limited by the volume at the top of the rocket. But something that's expandable or inflatable, I think they're they're, they're trying to emphasize expandable because they don't want people they don't want, don't want people to feel like there are pool toys in space, <laughs> a bouncy house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but uh, but it, it's a really great idea that you can you can much more affordably put large amounts of space in space mm. um and so so the spacex mission that the first stage did come back and land on the drone ship which is historic because that's the first time that they've been able to do that for um they've been able to do it on land but to do it on, at sea is important because for some of these payloads they have to build up so much speed um to get to orbit like to the international space station that they can't turn around and land on land there's not the the first stage doesn't have enough fuel to do exactly. that they they they're, they're too far out into the ocean so they they need a uh, a ship to land on and and they did it it's a huge huge thing and and um and we're going to find out they're going to do a bunch of tests and refire it and you know make the next step is to make sure that it wasn't damaged that that these things actually have been engineered to uh, be reused safely. So they they got a lot of work to do there. But the thing that they that they lifted off to the International Space Station, one of the things, and it's currently parked on the on the back of the Dragon capsule, basically ready to be attached, is the is Beam, the Bigelow expandable activity module, which is this experimental 
uh, ISS module that is the first one, really one of these expandable inflatable uh, space station parts. Um, and if it works uh, and and people are happy about it, then there's the potential for a much larger uh, expandable module down the road. Yeah, it's it, it's like 13 feet long, 10 and a half feet in diameter. It's not a very big area, but it's yeah. big well, enough where a crew member can test. hear it. Yeah, it's a and and uh, I think the goal here is this proof of concept of like okay, well we think this is a good idea, but if we attach one to the space station and it was in space for a while, what would happen? Would it would it leak? Would it be punctured? Uh is it is it will we learn things that we were not aware of and we think we know how this is going to work, but we don't know. And that's why you have to uh, try it out and and actually do the science and 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 that's what they're going to do like next month, I guess. They're going to attach it and inflate it mm-hmm. and 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 try it out. Yes, we will. Uh, we will check in on that. And in addition to being, you know, uh, very experimental now, one of the sort of goals in this experimentation is not only to be able to expand the International Space Station or some future space station project, um, but there's also been talk in the past couple of weeks about a commercial space station um, with Bigelow and ULA um, riding these plans, sort of on the back of some of this inflatable technology. Yeah, Bigelow, um, which made the Beam module, I, they they made this announcement with the the United Launch Alliance, mm-hmm. uh, because apparently that what they want to do is put this expandable, a bigger, a much larger expandable habitat in space, um, so large that uh, they took uh, uh, ULA takes a shot at SpaceX, which is kind of funny because SpaceX just isn't made to make uh, to launch something of this size. It's a bigger kind of thing, and the Atlas V will be able to launch it and the and the the dragon can't do it so um but what's what i found really interesting about is they're basically announcing they're going to do it right they're going to do this inflatable space habitat they're going to do it in 2020 um it's got uh 330 cubic meters of volume um but but the thing that really struck me is that they want it to be attached to the International Space Station. I guess I guess implied here is that if Beam goes well, and uh, and, and that which is not intended to be a permanent re- attachment to the ISS, it's a test. Mm-hmm. But that if that goes well, I think they want this big habitat to be attached to the International Space Station. But that hasn't been agreed to yet, so they have to sort of couch it as, well, if NASA agrees, then we'll do this. But it is kind of mind-blowing when you think about how much more volume something like this habitat that they're going to launch in in four years could give. It would actually grow the habitable space of the International Space Station by a third. Yeah, I mean, this, this cutaway image they have in their, in their <laughs> this post is, I mean, it is it is large. Especially, you know, last time we spoke about that 3D tour and the video from the space station and how tight everything is. And, yeah. you know, this sort of technology could potentially really open that sort of space up. Um, and, of course, there's lots of lots of concern, right? One, the primary one being, is this enough protection not only from radiation but from uh, debris in space? Yeah. And I, I don't know if we've spoken about it on the show, but um, in the – there are PBS just a documentary – um, about the year in space mission, and there's a little a little section in there talking about you know when they're when they're going to be passing through a debris field, and we're talking about I mean sometimes microscopic pieces of debris, nothing mm-hmm. you know it's not like gravity's going on right, um, but that these things can be dangerous, and they actually like hunker down in the back of the space station and seal themselves off, and 
that's a obviously yeah. a big concern for something that has sides made of something other than metal, <laughs> right? Although a lot, a lot of the metal used in a lot of the modules in the space station, I think I think one of the reasons people who are pro inflatables, or, you know, expandables are, are are in favor of it is that a lot of the debris is not going to be stopped by the relatively thin right. construction of the space station, so it doesn't matter whether it's an inflatable or not. Uh, fabric or something or whether it's metal because this stuff is just going to puncture almost anything and the shielded areas have to be smaller because and those are like the spacecraft and stuff. Um but uh, that's part of the point of having an inflatable test module is to see. But wouldn't that be, I mean, if this is a, this, these two stories go together really in some ways, right? Because this is all about access to space and making it more affordable. And one way you measure it is in bringing the costs down to fly things to space. The cost per weight in many cases. Um, and that's why reusable rockets are important. We've said that a bunch. But this is a great example of the other part, which is can we make... Um, volume of habitable areas in space a lot cheaper. And one way you do that is you create these expandable things that are going to be able to be way larger than uh, a, a fixed, you know, a rigid thing. Um, and that could totally open open it up. I mean, they, they, one of the concepts that Bigelow and ULA were talking about is the idea that they could chain um, they could even chain these together and essentially create their own very large space station um, on their own using using multiple inflatable modules. But I think it it strikes me that they they think their end game here is basically this is a tech demo because they think that countries that want uh, space station modules will want this technology, and that makes sense. Yeah, I, I think for me too, a big part of the story is that. Even though the International Space Station has been in service 15 years, there's still lots of room to grow and to to learn new things. That even though we are yeah. approaching the end of its life, more than likely, it is still a a great test platform and test bed for things like this to sort of spring us to the next generation of of what uh, a habitat in space could look like. Well, and this is we we were talking on our ISS episode about how there's not a lot of talk of new modules for the space station, right? Which which ultimately would have to happen to keep it going because uh, over time the, those modules are going to age and they're you were, they're going to have to do something. This may be at least possibly the future of of even like the existing International Space Station that you would swap out modules for some new modules using this technology. Or you could potentially just build a new space station with stuff like this. But, you know, it's early days and, and, and you know, you, you got to see the test will begin next month on the little sample. But I think it's a pretty cool idea. The idea that on one launch you could get this much space added to the International Space Station. It's pretty, it's a pretty big deal. And the, and the cutaway view is amazing where they've got like personal quarters. It's like enough space that people could have a little time by themselves on the space station, um, as well as like galley and, uh, and a you know, and a fitness equipment area, and a, like a shower and bathroom kind of space. Um, it, I think one of the questions is, could could stuff like this increase the um, potential number of people who could work on the International Space Station? Um, but my understanding there is that it's not just about space, but it's about returnability to Earth. Mm -hmm. You need to have enough seats on spacecraft docked at the ISS that people could evacuate in the case of an emergency. And that, that, that is like the biggest, the biggest question. And then once commercial crew becomes more, 
uh, you know, more of a thing. And we when we see commercial crew ferrying American uh, astronauts or at least NASA, you know, charters to the space station, that opens up that possibility, right? You could expand the space station and, and create more capacity for return flights to Earth and you could actually grow the number of people in space at a time, which would be pretty cool. It would be cool. Uh, a bunch of people sent us link links to a Kickstarter project called Moon, in all capital letters, um, <laughs> sure. which is uh, pitched as the most accurate lunar globe. And so basically what this is, is a, I'm trying to find the size real quick, but it is a, a 3D model of the moon with a, uh, basically a, a ring of LEDs out on an arm. And so you can see the current lunar face. As, it's like a desk, it's like a desk globe. Yeah. Their, their illustration has it sitting on a desk. Yeah. It's and it's um, uh, if you look at the GIF of it moving around, it really talks about like what we spoke about on our. I think it was on the tides episode we spoke about phases of the moon, um, and watching it go around is uh, quite frankly uh, mesmerizing. Mm, it is, but um, it's a pretty neat, pretty neat project. They're um, uh, way overfunded already, so this thing is going to be real. It looks like, um, but it's uh, a lot of people sent it in, and I, I thought it was pretty pretty neat way to visualize how. Moon phases work. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a fun idea that they're, I don't know if they're 3D printing it or what, but it's it's using the terrain maps from uh, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter. So it's it's like incredibly detailed. So if you're, this is a thing that if you're a moon fan, if you're a lunatic, so to speak, <laughs> uh, this is, this is your, this is your kind of thing, right? This is, this is, this is the coolest moon globe ever. It is. It is super cool. And th- that accuracy is really what they're, um, that they're pitching. So. Seems uh, pretty sweet. Yeah. I like how listeners send us links now. And like, this seems like a job for Liftoff Podcast. It's like, yay. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, <laughs> it's a, a lot of fun. A ton of stuff we get. Even, I mean, it's it's awesome that people write us in. Um, so if you remember back, it was early on, we talked about one of these planets caught by the um, uh, the Kepler mission, which they had a scare with their spacecraft, right? But turns out it's Okay. Yeah, it went into in into like uh, emergency mode, and and they were concerned that it was going to be dead. But they they worked through it, and you know, as we said before, you can't send the IT guy up to fix the spaceships, so you got to do it all remotely. And they did, which is awesome. Um, so, anyways, one of the one of the stars that it was looking at, there was a weird uh, pattern in the way that the light dimmed. It's aliens. It is not aliens. So the oh no, sorry, it's not aliens. Sorry, Jason. Pro- pro- at least probably it's not aliens. Probably it's not aliens. So there was conversation that this um, there was like a superstructure, et cetera, et cetera. Well, the the new theory uh, with some new data, and we have um, a link to the Bad Astronomy blog in the show notes about this, is that it may be a collection of uh, comets or comet debris that are transiting, and that we're seeing. Uh, th- basically the effect of that circling the star as opposed to alien megastructure. Yeah, they mentioned it at the time, and there was a lot of skepticism about it. And Phil Plate's piece is really good, um, as most of his pieces are, uh, about he provides skepticism to the skepticism, which I think is also really cool. Like the idea that he's like, yeah, it could be comets. They would have to be big. They, he was saying it's like you'd almost need an object like Ceres, uh, you know, a very large object to, uh, generally speaking, series is big enough to be round, right? Breaking up for some reason, and all those pieces would have to become like the comets, um, and we would be lucky enough to be in the right place at the right time to see that 
uh, bombardment because it wouldn't last, relatively speaking, in, in universe terms, very long. Right. And so we would say basically like, we would have to be very lucky to see something like that. At the same time, this is the only place we've ever seen anything like this. Perhaps we are lucky. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I love his conclusion because this says so much about science and astronomy, which is um, we still don't know. We have some ideas. It might be a bunch of stuff. It might be comets plus other stuff. It might be something completely different. We still don't know. And that's actually kind of one of the fun about it. One of the fun things about it is, as he puts it, the data the data is real. The um, This is something we're seeing. Mm-hmm. We don't know what it is, but it's not nothing. Right. <laughs> it's something weird. And they're still figuring it out. But the comet's idea, the idea that there's debris, but it's got to be very specific debris. It's not like totally diffuse debris for it to get these weird readings. And then uh, he says, too, that there's some some signals in the in the in the data that are very, very unlikely to be comets. So it may be that it's like comets and planets and something else it's it's cool i love it i love it when scientists are stumped because that means there's going to be a lot of learning going on yeah but probably not aliens yeah and it's 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 i think that that is one of the big factors that makes this thing pop back up in the news that there's not a clean explanation with our current knowledge and so i like you i'm looking forward to seeing if they can kind of parse more of this apart but um yeah this this uh this star just keeps um Keeps coming back. Yeah, it's uh, it's good. Maybe the aliens made the comets. Uh... <laughs> anyway, we should probably move should on. Move on. Um, so real quick, I just wanted to to take a moment and share a little bit. Uh, I spent, I guess, last weekend now uh, in Atlanta at the Atlanta Pin Show. We have another show on the network called the Pin Addict, and they did a, we did a live show and uh, it's a big conference and in the pin pin world. And it was great. I met several listeners uh, of liftoff and I spoke to somebody at a bar about black holes for like 25 minutes, which was a super nerdy uh, little uh, time in my life. But hmm. uh, it was great to see, go out and see people. It's always fun to go do uh, live events. The network's doing another one uh, this summer at the Apple developer conference. But um, I just want to say it's a quick thanks and shout out to listeners who came up and said, Hey, and introduced themselves. And uh, it was great to, to meet some people this past weekend. Is there a space show where you look at space things? Maybe we should go to that. We should go to that. I want to do something. I have some ideas for things we could do. I want to go to space. Like, I want to go to adult space camp with you, Jason. Oh, that's interesting. I we do that. Um, I hope they don't shoot us into space though. That by accident. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh, we thought you were in the uh, play rocket. Turns out we've had people say, um, you know, we should do a meetup at Kennedy Space Center, or we should do a meetup in in uh, in Huntsville, Alabama, or we should go to the Johnson Space Center in Houston, or I mean, lots of lots of ideas like that. And I'm not opposed to us trying to figure out what a good liftoff event would be. I'm just not sure what it was, what it would be, and what would draw people there, because that's part of the appeal too. Is that we want it to not just be necessarily Jason and Stephen go somewhere and say, hey, we're, you know, we're here. We could also lie and just do it from our homes and say, no, 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 we're in Florida now. But um, but uh, we'd like to, like, meet people when we do that. Oh, so yeah. I don't know. We'll come up with something. If you have any ideas, let us know. Yeah. Uh, so, Jason, you want to tell us about our first sponsor? Uh, sure. Uh, our good friends at Luminos are back to sponsor another episode of uh, Liftoff. 
And uh, as you know, probably, you should know, if you don't know, please listen up. The all-in-one mobile astronomy app for iPhone, iPad, and Apple Watch from Wobbleworks. It's Luminos. It's been in development for more than a decade now. It brings the power of desktop astronomy programs to your mobile devices. You no longer just have to be tied to a PC in order to see the universe. Wobbleworks is kicking off its sixth year of free feature updates by announcing the release of Luminos version 9, which brings the largest star catalog available anywhere on mobile to your devices. It's got the complete UCA C4 with up to 113 million stars. But you know what? Not all of our phones can fit the entire universe, so you can choose which catalog size best fits your needs and storage and download that portion of the catalog with a single tap. You can even augment it with free supplemental data. There's lots of stuff, including photometry and proper motion. They also support the latest iOS 9 features, so there's split-screen multitasking, spotlight search. The Luminos app for Apple Watch has been updated for watchOS 2. Uh, Wobbleworks is a family business. They have more than 50 years combined of software experience, and they've crafted Luminos to delight current astronomy fans and to create new ones. There's nothing like standing out under the stars with your kids and pointing out, you know, there, what planet is that and what star is that and what constellation is that. It does all of that. It's got detailed planet and moon maps. You could even point out uh, craters on the moon, uh, tens of thousands of asteroids and comets, millions of stars. There's support for wireless telescope control and a whole lot more. So you've got to check it out. You're listening to this podcast. Please, you owe it to yourself to check out Luminos. You can get all the details at wobbleworks.com. Thanks to Luminos and Wobbleworks for sponsoring Liftoff once again. All right, so we're going to spend the rest of today talking about Venus. Venus, we're going inward. We're moving inward in the solar system to our friend Venus. We've spent a lot of time out in the solar system, Pluto, the moon draft. We thought it'd be time to turn inward a little bit. Yeah, no moons inward. None. No, that's true. Venus has no moons. Mercury has no moons. I actually read that it's possible that Venus... Uh, could have had a moon or moons that's big enough to maybe hold them, but because it's so much closer to the sun, the sun's gravity probably flung the moon's way out into space yeah. a long time ago. Sorry, Venus. Sorry, Venus. Uh, that's kind of the theory. The TLDR here is, uh, sorry, Venus, you're not a very nice place to be. So close, though. So close. I mean, that's the that's that's one of the things we'll get into it, but Venus is so close in so many ways it, that Mars isn't. But, you know, close but no cigar, basically. <laughs> Yeah. So uh, a, a little bit of housekeeping, quick facts before we dive into this. Uh, it is the, of course, the second planet from the sun. If you remember your uh, planet placement from elementary school, it's about a third closer to the sun than we are. So that's going to be a big, big thing that we um, talk about in this episode is its its proximity to our star. It is the third brightest item in the sky. You're just talking about the luminous ad. Um, Venus is so bright most of the time you can just walk outside and see it uh, if you know where to look it's usually pretty close uh to where the the sun is in the sky it's bright enough at times where you can see it um even in daylight uh if you're yeah. if you know where to look yeah it's it's the logic here too is it's always near the sun because it's inward from us so it never strays from the sun we're never between it and the sun right so it's it's like mercury it's always close ish to the sun and if you're ever wondering like is that bright, that very bright star I see, um, Venus, that's usually your, your next question is, well, where's the sun right now? Is it just, did it just go down and you're looking at the western skyline where the sun just set and there's a super bright star? That's probably Venus mm-hmm. uh, because that's, that's how that works is it's a, it's the evening star, but it's really just a sunrise or sunset planet because you, uh, 
you know, it's never it never strays that far, but it is really bright. And yeah, absolutely, it can be done if you know exactly where to look and you've got good eyes and you're not blinded by the sun. So don't look yeah. directly at the sun, but you can see it in the daytime. It's pretty spectacular. It is. And there's some funny tricks that happen because of its relative placement of the sun with us. So uh, Venus appears to have phases, much like the moon uh-huh. does. And because as we we are further out from it, we see its rotation around the sun. And um, it's actually uh, pretty neat uh, watching some animations of that. If you didn't know what you were looking at, you would think you're looking at the moon. It has a very similar uh, phase cycle. Have you ever done that? Have you ever looked at Venus and seen the phases? Uh, I have not. I I don't actually have. This is embarrassing as a co-host on a space podcast. I don't have a working telescope at the moment. Well, you know, you don't even but, you don't even need a telescope if your if your eyes are really good. I think you can actually notice with your eyes and certainly yeah, with binoculars. With bin- with binoculars, you can see the phases hmm. of Venus. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, I'll have to give that. I'll have to give that a shot. Um, we can also see Venus uh, transit the sun and. Because of some irregularities and, or not irregularities, but some specific details that the math in the video I watched basically blew my mind, we see Venus transit the sun in sets of two. So we will see it uh, like in one year, and then we will see it eight years later, and then we won't see it again for another century. Yeah, but you just Um, missed it. (laughs) We just missed it. Yeah, the next one is in uh, 2117, so uh, you and I are going to see it, but... um. (laughs) Nobody uh, else. No, tw- we we had them in two thousand four and two thousand twelve, where yeah. where we had um, where we had uh, Venus. You know these these amazing shots of like the the familiar sort of like filtered shots of the sun, and there's a little circle because Venus is going by. Yeah, it's it's um, it's pretty spectacular. Uh, I watched some footage of I think the twenty twelve one, uh, you know, in like full HD, and um, it's uh, so it's every every. <laughs> Every eight years, every century, I guess is how you would say it. Yeah. Um, so Venus itself is it's very similar to Earth in size and mass. It's about 95% the width of our planet and about 85% of the Earth's mass. Yeah, I mean, very it's close the, to our size. Yeah, it's the most similar planet to the Earth uh, in terms of just the basic composition of it. It's, you know, it's slightly smaller than the Earth, but I mean, Mars is a lot smaller than the Earth. Uh, but Venus is close, which is why they always say it's sort of the sister planet. It's Venus and Earth are not that different uh, at the ba- most basic of levels. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it's thought to have a core, mantle, and crust, just like we do here. Um, there are a couple of differences, um, mostly related around its rotation. So a Venus day is 243 Earth days, and it's actually currently slowing down. Um, it, it means I saw someone comment in an article that it means that you could jog at the equator faster than the planet spins below you, which is sort of mind-boggling. Um, and it also means that Venus is very spherical. You know, the Earth and other planets are a little bit squished because we're spinning so quickly. We have a bulge around the equator. Venus does not uh, show that behavior because the spin is just so slow. Yeah, it's it's. Well, this is so th- th- there are a lot of clues about like the formation and life of Venus from the fact that it rotates so slowly and it's going back it's going backward, right? It's a retrograde rotation. It's retrograde. <laughs> so something happened, right? Something happened to Venus because it, it would not, you know, most solar system bodies spin uh the right direction. Yeah, counterclockwise. <laughs> counterclockwise uh when viewing the North Pole is up. 
Um, and uh, it doesn't do that. And as we said when we were talking about the outer solar system, because it's, is it Neptune? No, it's Uranus, I think, that's weird and upside it's down. And, yeah, it's on its side. Or on its yeah. side, yeah. It's rolling like a like a bowling ball. Um, Venus, similarly, right? There, something happened um, to make it behave that way. And, and it's unclear what that is and whether it was... Um, I don't know. Did you see in any of your stories? Are there are there a lot of theories about why Venus is the way it is? Why? You know, you know I'd always heard that the idea was that there was an impact, impact and it right. hit it so hard that it it flipped over. Um, but then I read some things also that were saying, well, you know that that may be possible. But um, one paper I read now this was from like the maybe ten years ago, so I don't I don't it may not be the most accurate thing anymore. But the, uh, this paper put out that an impact that big would have done so much damage to the planet that, you know, it'd be, it'd be catastrophic if it was big enough to flip it over. So, uh, I don't, I don't really know. It seems like some people may think that it got hit and other people think that, you know, something, just something else happened. It seems much Uh, like your, uh, comments earlier, kind of, uh, a little bit unknown. Yeah. I I did find a a brief article in the, it's a scientific American article about this from 2001, that is, uh, we'll put in the show notes, it's interesting. They say that uh, one thought is that uh, it flipped its axis, but there's also a group that thinks maybe the most stable uh, orientation for Venus is to rotate the other direction, and that it was originally rotating in the same direction as all the other planets, and it kept getting slower and slower and slower, and then went backward. Hmm. Like, it's actually finding its most natural progression which is also that it would just be more stable in a retrograde state uh fascinating stuff though so it's it's weird i mean it's closer to the sun and the sun's influence is much greater so it's a it's a weird place even before you look under the clouds it's a weird place <laughs> yeah so the um so the the surface of venus which we actually have we're going to get into some of the exploration but we have we we can't see it they we have to use things like radar and, and other technology to see it cuz you can't see through the cloud cover with visible light. Um, but the surface looks fairly young. There's not a huge amount of impact craters. And if you remember from the moon draft, we talked about resurfacing this idea that you can look at the number of impacts on a body and kind of estimate or put its age into some sort of bracket based on the number of impacts. Right. But the factor there is resurfacing any volcano, um, volcanism activity is going to, of course, put new material on the surface and smooth things over. Yeah, paves, and, paves it all out. <laughs> right, yeah, it's like repaving the street in front of your house, mm-hmm. just uh, planet-wide. And it's that seems to be going on. Uh, it's even thought that volcanic activity is still active um, uh, on Venus. And so we're seeing these, like, 0.5 billion-year-old impact craters, while they should be much older than that. And so something resurfaced the planet about uh, half a billion years ago and is still potentially resurfacing parts of it even today. Yeah, it's an active active surface, uh, which is cool. It's, it's, there's stuff going on. It's dynamic, and it's not a dead planet. Not a dead planet. Uh, it also is home to uh, what are called pancake domes, which if you look at photos of things, what I thought of was crop circles. Like they're mm. basically huge circular areas. Sometimes they overlap, um, where instead of a volcano you know, erupting and shooting a bunch of uh, material up into the atmosphere and it raining down uh, this idea that it sort of just seeps out of the surface because venus doesn't have any tectonic activity like we do here and uh, so instead of coming out violently in big bursts that sometimes magma may be coming out just sort of 
slowly over time, and that would create these smooth circular areas as the magma is spread out across mm. the surface. So some some interesting features that we don't see here on our planet. Right. So do we want to go to the atmosphere? Yeah, yeah. The, this is maybe the most notable thing about Venus, right, is, is its atmosphere. Yeah, so it's... Um, Let's talk about what it's what it's made of. Uh, like you said, we have this dense cloud cover. We can't see through it. It's also the reason it's so bright in the sky because so much mo- most of the light, in fact, that hits Venus is reflected back out into right. the solar system. These clouds are made up of mostly carbon dioxide. Um, and the 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 fun fact for the day is that it has something like ninety times the atmospheric pressure that we have here on the surface of Earth. Yeah, this is an incredibly thick atmosphere but it's uh incredibly thick with carbon dioxide and as anybody knows who has been reading about science and climate on earth what happens when there's a lot of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and the answer is you get a greenhouse effect because of the way that carbon dioxide works um, in the atmosphere, it is insulating the uh, the the planet and not allowing the heat to escape, and you end up with, uh, ru- in this case, the runaway greenhouse effect, where beyond a certain point, um, it 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 no longer it just it it goes to incredibly hot temperatures, and that's what happened on Venus. Yeah, so we're talking surface temperatures of like four hundred and sixty degrees Celsius, which is just. Uh, unbelievably hot for Americans. It's eight hundred and sixty degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah, this is lead melting, like you know. Yeah, this is, I guess, a really good like pizza oven or something. Wow. Yeah, a whole planet. <laughs> yeah, a pizza planet. Pizza planet, <laughs> sure. Uh, and there's uh, sulfuric acid rain. I mean, it's just like the 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 story here with the atmosphere is that this is the worst case scenario for the greenhouse effect, right? That it is so yeah. out of control, and we're gonna get to why here in a second, but. Uh, basically, it the atmosphere has turned Venus into a type of a pressure cooker, almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a mess, and th- and that's why when we uh, we'll talk about the exploration in a little bit, but that's why it's been actually very hard to mm-hmm. explore Venus in the way we explore Mars, because down on the surface is not a place you can be for very long if you're a robot, and if you're a person, you couldn't go down there at all. So um, it's uh, it's a problem, and in fact, until we sent. Uh, spaceships in orbit around it with radar to look beneath the clouds it was just a cue ball right i mean we had no idea what was down there until we could sort of look through its clouds at other wavelengths yeah exactly it's 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 uh, it's a bad place to be yeah uh we we spoke about some moons being encased in ice that's kind of what i think of right that it, it is just a complete shell around the planet of this mm-hmm. cloud cover yeah yeah it's not it's uh yeah, it's a it's a unique kind of uh, body, solar system body, and uh, yeah, but I wouldn't want to live there. No. Uh, so we're going to talk about how Venus uh, became the way that it is, how it got to where it is today. Um, but first, do you want to tell us about our second sponsor? This episode of Liftoff is also brought to you by Curiosity Stream. It's the world's first ad-free nonfiction streaming service, founded by John Hendricks, the founder of Discovery Communications. Curiosity Stream has more than 1,400 titles and 600 hours of content. It's available, this is really nice, in 196 different countries worldwide. There's so many things we get digitally that are available in the U.S., maybe the U.K. This is available all over the world and on plenty of platforms, web app, 
Roku, Android, iOS, Chromecast, Amazon Fire, Amazon Kindle, and Apple TV. There's a wide variety of science and technology content, plus nature, history, and a whole lot more. More than 50 hours of 4K content, which they just launched. It's one of the largest 4K video libraries on the internet. In addition to documentaries, they also have interviews and lectures. It includes Stephen Hawking's Universe, a series where Stephen Hawking traces the history of astronomical theories and technology. Next World, featuring Michio Kaku, talking about the futures of technology virtual reality, artificial intelligence, and other big technological questions. There's the human face of big data, currently an exclusive on CuriosityStream, and the road to the singularity with Jason Silva and other experts exploring the inevitable arrival of superhuman intelligence in a CuriosityStream original documentary. There are monthly plans and annual plans available, and they start at just $2.99 per month. What a deal. Less than a cup of coffee or one book on a competing on-demand platform. So check them out, curiositystream.com slash RelayFM and use the promo code RelayFM during sign up to get unlimited access to the world's top documentaries and nonfiction series completely free for the first 60 days. You get 60 days to try it out. That's two entire months free of one of the largest 4K video libraries around. Just go to curiositystream.com slash RelayFM and use the offer code RelayFM at sign up. And thanks to CuriosityStream for sponsoring Liftoff. All right, so Venus, it's bad. Um, do you? Can, can, but can you tell me, Stephen? Can you tell me why why it's so hellish down on Venus? Why why did this happen? Yeah. So the the moral of the story is don't live so close to the sun. <laughs> okay. Good tip. Um, this is what I tell my mom when I visit her in Arizona. <laughs> Same thing. It's like this is not. This is too hot. Don't 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 live here. <laughs> so it is. Um, t- to really understand this, we have to take a little sidetrack into the the life cycle of a star, which we keep teasing. We're going to do that episode. We will do that episode one day soon. I promise. Um, but the sun, as it has aged, has gotten hotter, right? As as stars and on our sequence do, and over time, what that has meant is that Venus while in the past may have had a uh, a more mild environment, as the sun got hotter, started to heat up the water on Venus. It's actually thought mm. that Venus at one point had water oceans, much like we do here. And if you remember from science class, when water evaporates, um, the hydrogen and oxygen uh, evaporate, and you end up with huge amounts of CO2 in the atmosphere, so much so that um, once the oceans boiled off, basically, and this this greenhouse effect started, that's even thought that the CO2 was driven out of, like, moisture in rocks, like, to that extreme of a, of a effect that all the CO2 on the surface was pumped into the atmosphere. And as this yeah. happens, we see yeah. heat and we see pressure go up. Yeah, no, so people might be saying, well, wait a second, how can, how can evaporating water cause the atmosphere to be full of CO2 because there's no carbon in water? And the answer is water vapor is also a greenhouse gas. Um, and, you know, when we have some of it, and that's why our planet is not an ice ball, uh, is because we've got lots of different things that insulate the planet. But um, what happens is you get, you get a, a greenhouse effect with the water, um, and 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 then you also get um, the it it basically there's a feedback loop and it doubles the amount of warming caused by CO two, 
um and then and you get yeah the carbon comes out and it's it's really complicated but this is they all work together because we don't think of of water vapor as being a a problem but that's also because we we aren't releasing massive amounts of water water vapor into our our atmosphere it's got water vapor in it but it's sort of like got the amount that it's got and the global global warming climate change stuff is all about the carbon but on venus if you if you boil the oceans that's going to be a problem and mm-hmm. that's what happened and it was it was magnified that Venus. Never let it be said, by the way, that you can't boil the ocean because you can, and you get Venus. Yeah. So the next time you're in a meeting, and somebody says, you know, look, we we don't want to boil the ocean here. You can say, because we'd end up like Venus, and they will look at you funny, and you'll have to run away. So don't do that. <laughs> uh, let it be known that Jason and I don't have jo- jobs. We have to go to meetings very often. Yep. Um, and this it's also, a good thing. yeah, yeah, uh, and the water vapor CO two element. Uh, sort of part of this is also made worse that Venus lacks a magnetic field. So we've spoken about here on Earth we have a magnetic field that protects us from the solar winds of of uh, ionized particles streaming away from the sun, right? right which we, we talked about with Mars, the idea that we that uh, solar events were actually abrading Mars's tenuous atmosphere and just knocking parts of the atmosphere off exactly and and uh that they're they think that that probably happened to uh to venus as well where a lot of the lighter stuff just got blown off by the by the solar wind which is more intense at venus than it is at earth or mars right and so what that's done is it's stripped away these lighter elements and basically where you end up with these sulfur dioxide clouds um they are denser, they're closer to the surface, and as the top stuff gets stripped away, that's what's left behind. Yep. So really, Venus has, uh, I mean, it's a myriad of problems, right? That it's it's too out from the sun, the atmosphere now is a pressure cooker due to all this heat, and you have the sun kind of coming back around with the double whammy of the solar winds, stripping away uh, what's left of any protective atmosphere in the upper levels. Right, and it, it's not it's not impossible that it could have gone a different way for Venus, but this is sort of like based on what was what uh, where it is and what stuff it had, you know. That this is sort of was the end result, but it's also important to realize that Earth's climate has been radically different over the course of its lifetime. There was a period where there was basically no oxygen in the atmosphere. Um, there, there was a snowball period where Earth was iced over. I mean, we we think of our our climate today, and we talk about climate change in the in the context of um, melting the ice caps and warming the temperature a little bit. But over Earth's history, the climate variation has been radically different. Um, and Earth was pretty much uninhabitable during earlier periods, too. So, But but Earth ended up going down this path that allowed it to end up being the right temperature for liquid water and for uh, things that would, would uh, eat, basically breathe carbon dioxide and output oxygen, Thanks chlorophyll. Thanks plants, and <laughs> and we ended up with this oxygen rich environment where um, with uh, liquid water, and that's the planet that we get to live on. Uh, but it, it wasn't always that way. Uh, Venus, though, its initial set of of uh, of features, I guess, led it to this sort of sad state that it ended up in. It is a sad state. So let's talk a little bit about exploring Venus. Uh, like you said, uh, it's a problem to be on the surface. Uh, we're going to get into some landers uh, that have made it to the surface, but they, they don't last very long. No. Um, but it, this started back in the 60s. And what's what's interesting to me about reading some of this is that Venus is sort of a forgotten chapter of the space race that both the American government and 
the Soviet Union were really um, in a race in a, in a big sense to get to Venus and to to start imaging it. And so you had sort of parallel tracks going on in both countries. Um, we got some links in the show notes to some of this stuff. Um, the American uh, Mariner Project in the 60s, Mariner 2 was the first spacecraft to successfully encounter another planet. Um, Soviet Union would have been there first because they had uh, some early failures. Actually, like um, like we did, uh, mm-hmm. the first Mariner basically uh, blew up on the launch pad, which is not what you want to happen to your space probe. It's not good for its longevity. But um, uh, it first encountered Venus uh, in December of 1962. So this is, this is early on to the yeah. 60s. I mean... Um, we were getting our first fuzzy images, like you said, the cue ball, right? There's no early images of the surface. We're just seeing um, basically the top of the clouds. But uh, the Soviet Union was uh, right on their heels. What what were they up to, Jason? Well, so they did they did a lot. They the um I I would actually argue that the story of Venus, just as as the United States has really kind of owned Mars exploration, which is not to say that the Soviets didn't do some great Mars exploration, especially early on, but the Soviets. Um, dominated Venus. Like Venus was was their thing. So they had their first probe was uh, was Zond. I like to say that it di- it didn't work, but it was a cool name, Zond. And then they had the Venera series of probes. Um, they had one that that crash landed on the surface in '66, which was the first bit of human technology to to reach the surface of another planet. I thought that was a really great uh, little bit of trivia. Um, and then Venera 4 um, actually measured the atmosphere. It was the first spacecraft to measure the atmosphere of another uh, planet. They they all, you know, basically get crushed by the atmosphere and a ball of molten metal lands on the surface and is absorbed into Venus. That's sort of how it works. But um, it, with Venera uh, 7 and then many Venera missions after that, they managed to land on the surface starting in 1970. And so... That's how we've got a lot of the science we've got comes from these early um, Soviet missions where they tried to build these things to withstand those conditions. And so, you know, they would last uh, like Venera 7 lasted 23 minutes. Um, They don't last very long, but they they put more more uh, instruments on them and they tried to harden them. Um, one probe lasted for 45 minutes, I guess. Oh, well, that, that was one of the NASA probes, right? So, um, so NASA ended up sending some pioneer missions, which I think you probably want to talk about. I don't know, but, um, later on, but the Venera missions just kept on going. So there were flybys and there were landings and a lot of, of, uh, Soviet exploration of Venus and a lot of, uh, craft landed, and melted on the surface of Venus to learn, to get us a little bit of knowledge of what was down under the clouds from under the clouds instead of uh, using like radar. Mm-hmm. And there's some pictures floating around of the surface taken by these, these landers. And they had a sort of an unfortunate run of events with the lens caps on the cameras, like basically not coming <laughs> off. Or I think one came off and then landed where they were supposed to have a probe going down to the dirt or to the surface. And it basically, sampled the top of the camera lens instead of the the dirt because it landed Uh, right in the wrong place Uh, a string of unfortunate vaguely comedic events but there are a handful of images that were transmitted back before these things were destroyed and it is you you can't see very much right this is not what we see from mars today is very you know simple imagery um 
but very uh very stirring in a way that you see the base of this this lander and um, basically just this cracked dry surface stretching out to the edges of the photo yeah and, and it's mind-blowing to think about i mean just as we have to struggle to understand the context of something like um, the the Huygens lander on Titan and the, you know, rocks that are just ice and lakes that are uh, methane and things like that. Here, we're looking at uh, like an 800 degrees Fahrenheit surface. It just, it's it's hard to even imagine. And bone dry and in this, uh, incredibly dense atmosphere that we would only find under the surface of the of the ocean, like way down in the ocean. Um, it's yeah, it's it's a it's another alien world, and uh, we don't have that many pictures of it because it's very hard to uh, send a camera there that isn't immediately m- crushed and melted. <laughs> yeah, you'd have some pretty uh, pretty uh, hardcore engineering for stuff to survive. Um, kind of something. Uh, more current, I would say. Uh, a big one to talk about is ESA's Venus Express, which uh, was a um, an orbiter sent to Venus. It actually uh, plummeted to the, the surface a couple of years ago, but did some much more modern, much more um, complicated, I guess, measurements of the atmosphere. And uh, the, kind of one of the big things that comes out in the article we'll link to is that the 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 northern pole atmosphere is seemingly much cooler than they scientists expected. Yeah, uh, the, the last thing they did was basically aerobrake through the atmosphere, which has been done on Mars, but hadn't been done on a, a thick atmosphere like Venus. Uh, I mean, it hadn't done on Earth, but it hadn't been done on Venus. So um, that was cool. They got to do that, and they sampled the atmosphere, uh, which was some sort of last. There's a paper that's just being published, actually, even though this uh, mission ended in 2014, uh, to learn about... Um, they, they, there's evidence of atmospheric waves, which is something that we see on Earth too. But to see it on Venus, it's a different planet. That's cool to know. And that they, uh, the that that atmosphere above the North Pole was uh, colder than they expected it to be. So it's just it's more science going on in that case. Uh, with a lot of these missions, when they come to their end, they try to they try to sort of finish them in a way that is going to provide some science. So in this case, you're basically crashing the, the Venus express into, <laughs> into the atmosphere in order to learn things about the atmosphere before it, before it dies. Mm-hmm. Uh, Venus express also uh, helped explore the atmospheric uh, gravity waves. So uh, if you think about a wave in the ocean, um, these are waves that ripple through the atmosphere at Venus and they travel vertically. So they start at lower altitude and move uh, upward and outward through the atmosphere and become stronger as the density uh, decreases. And these have interplay with planetary waves that are associated with the spin of the planet. So uh, really looking at this thick atmosphere in ways that just weren't measurable back in the sixties and seventies when a lot of the science was going on. Right. Right. It's yeah, it's, it's a, uh, it's good stuff. Um, I guess we should also say there is one ship, uh, one one craft that is is in Venus orbit now. We've talked about it before. It's Akatsuki, which is the Japanese probe that had the problem where it like um, it failed its orbital insertion. Mm-hmm. It was floating around the sun for a while, and they used very carefully. They used most of its propellant to see if they could get it in these very timed burns to get it in a Venusian uh, orbit, which they did. Uh, it's elliptical. It was supposed to have a kind of a 
uh, a standard circular orbit around Venus. Instead, it's this elliptical orbit where it comes very close to Venus, uh, closer than they thought originally uh, for a short amount of time, and then it kind of goes way out, and then it comes back. But it's in orbit, and they can image the surface um, in a whole bunch of different wavelengths, and they will they will be able to use it to learn a lot of stuff about Venus. Um, they just have to do it in this kind of interesting timing where they really load up on the science when they're close in and then they they uh and then they get kind of get flung further away and they have to wait to come back but it they made it they they salvaged that probe um like five years after uh they launched it they they finally got it where it needed to be but it's there now so that's our current um that's our current venus uh orbiter right now is the japanese probe akatsuki it's a great rescue story isn't it Mm -hmm. that's one of my favorites um, so some some future plans include a possible rover. Um, uh, of course, it, they have to deal with all the issues of, like we've been speaking about, the temperature and the pressure. Um, but there are some some articles floating around about some possible joint NASA ESA uh, rover missions in the future, uh, more orbiters. But most exciting, basically, what uh, you could describe as zeppelins. Zeppelins in space. Uh, I think I mentioned this at least once. I mentioned this when uh, Emily Lakdawalla was on mm-hmm. the show about planetary missions beyond Mars in the intersolar system. And uh, NASA did this cool video um, called Havoc, which uh, stands for High Altitude Venus Operational Concept. Sure. Um, Got to have a cool acronym. But the idea is... Um, Though the surface, and this really captured my imagination, I think it's a really cool idea that you get, you can't think of planetary exploration as being surface exploration. There are parts of Venus where the temperature isn't too terrible, and uh, and people could go, and certainly probes could go there, and that's in the atmosphere. At certain levels of atmosphere, you can get basically like Earth pressure and Earth-ish temperatures. They're a little hotter than Earth and you would have to deal with, um, you know, some acid rain, some sulfuric acid rain. You'd have to deal with that. <laughs> but, the, but the idea is you could create a, 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 a probe on Venus that was solar powered because there's lots of sunlight there. It's really close to the sun. It's great, like better than Earth, solar power. Uh, and you could have these little balloons, little uh, little zeppelins, and you could float around for an extended mission uh, imaging the planet uh, from high altitude. And and no, that isn't landing on the planet, but you could do it. And then even there's even a concept of that, you know, you could send people and you could have extended missions that it's like a space station around another planet where they were all in these uh, these uh, little uh, kind of balloons. And uh, and it's a really interesting idea, including the fact that at that level, although you'd need a breathing mask, uh, you could probably actually like. And and again, you'd want to make sure there was no sulfuric acid rain happening at that moment. But you could like step outside in shirt sleeves potentially at that at that level. It would be hot, but it would be something that people could actually stand. It would be not you would not be in space. You would be in a in a difficult environment, but not not a vacuum. And that's also really interesting too. So they talked about that. Um, it's unclear whether something like that would be prioritized. Although in talking to Emily, I mean, I definitely got the sense that. This might be something that people make a proposal for at some point. The idea of sending a probe that is a an atmospheric probe to Venus that is, you know, is inflatable. Essentially, we're back to inflatables again and and can do extended uh, close up evaluation, not from the surface, but also not from orbit. 
but instead just from floating in the clouds and understanding more about how the clouds work and how the atmosphere of Venus works, as well as potentially being uh, laying the groundwork for some human exploration of a of of uh, NASA's focused on Mars right now. But I think this is an interesting idea that there might be human exploration potential around uh, in the atmosphere of Venus. And I put in some science fiction links because you know I like to do that. Oh yeah. Um, there's a there's a, a fun uh, there's a story a register story about Charles Strauss the science fiction writer proposing um, uh, floating cities on Venus as a place to you know we could colonize Mars but we we might be able to more easily colonize Venus actually by at that level of reasonable temperature and reasonable pressure. Um, you could chain together like very large structures that just float in the atmosphere and use the sun and you could potentially colonize Venus uh, on the cloud tops, basically living, living uh, high above um, the awful surface of Venus. It's an interesting idea. And um, I also put in a link to a, a novel that he wrote called Saturn's Children, which is about a lot of different places on in the solar system. It's a, it's a kind of a Asimov and a Heinlein uh, homage in a way. Um, but one of the things that one of the places that they visit that is, is, uh, that I really remember clearly from it is, is a floating city, um, above Venus. And, uh, that's one of the settings there. So I think this is a, I just, I like the idea that this is a place that we don't talk about a lot that actually, um, it, it might be in fact, one of the only places in the solar system other than planet earth where where a person could stand outside without a spacesuit or a protective an environment suit um and yeah it's not on the ground but it's still like venus could be sort of habitable at that level so thinking outside the box a little bit but a, a fun idea and i think for a planet that doesn't really capture our imaginations very often because it is this hellhole <laughs> I think that's kind of a fun idea that there, there maybe there is something to capture our imaginations about Venus after all. Yeah, uh, I totally, totally agree with you. It's not one of those places that seems to stir a lot of like aspirational feelings like Mars does, but um, that doesn't mean that it couldn't become that one day. Yeah, just send, let's send a blimp to Venus, I say. Let's do it. You're 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 pro blimp, really. I I uh, you know airships uh, get a bad get a bad rap. There's lots of good stuff about airships. I think that uh, that does it for this uh, this episode. I think so. I think uh, I think you're right. But we we covered a lot of ground here. We we nailed one of the planets. That's a big uh, big thing for us. Yeah, it's, uh, it feels good to get a planet checked off the list. If you want to find links for this week, there are a couple of ways to do that. You can check out the podcast app of choice that you're using right now. This link should be in there. You can find them on our website, relay.fm slash liftoff slash 19. As always, we'll be sharing some of this stuff um, on the Tumblr at liftoffpodcast.space. You can hit us up on Twitter uh, at Liftoff Podcast. You can find Jason there as well at Jay Snell, and he writes the uh very exciting sixcolors.com, the most colorful navigation you will ever see on a website. That's true. Which I love very much. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at ISMH and I write at 512pixels.net. And uh, I guess until the next fortnight, Jason, say goodbye. Yes. Bye, everybody. Get your blimp. Go to Venus. <laughs>